This talk was given by Danica Shoan Ankeley at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. I wanted to talk about um, practicing when it's difficult. And I imagine that um, in the last, say, month or so, uh, pretty much all of us, even in ordinary circumstances, would have run into some kind of rough patch. And in the present situation, perhaps um, some uncharted waters. And knowing that those of us here in this room are safe and healthy. Um, in fact, I was noticing the other day, and it's been noticed before, that this is probably the healthiest ongo we've ever had. No one's gotten a cold, hardly. And as Sancho said, with all of our sanitizing efforts, there isn't a microbe on campus that stands a chance. <laughs> So, um, you know, knowing that and then knowing that, you know, beyond the gate um, are people in our sangha who are um, dealing in very real ways with sickness and death and loss and the great instability of this time. So I... um, was kind of pulling material together to uh, inspire me. <laughs> and that process sometimes begins with a little bit of a, like, casting a very wide net, um, as I just kind of am, like, looking, like, letting my intuition um, lead the way. And um, on an impulse, I pulled this classic volume from uh, my, my bookshelf, Raise High, The Roof Beam Carpenters, and Seymour, An Introduction, by J.D. Salinger, who was one of my first teachers of the way. And I wanted to start with um, the way that he starts this, this story. One night some 20 years ago, during a siege of mumps in our enormous family, my youngest sister, Franny, was moved, crib and all, into the ostensibly germ-free room I shared with my eldest brother, Seymour. I was 15. Seymour was 17. Along about two in the morning, the new roommate's crying wakened me. I lay in a still, neutral position for a few minutes, listening to the racket, till I heard or felt Seymour stir in the bed next to mine. In those days, we kept a flashlight on the night table between us for emergencies that, as far as I remember, never arose. Seymour turned it on and got out of bed. The bottle's on the stove, Mother said, I told him. I gave it to her a little while ago, Seymour said. She isn't hungry. He went over to the dark in the bookcase and beamed the flashlight slowly back and forth along the stacks. I sat up in bed. What are you going to do? I said. 
I thought maybe I'd read something to her, Seymour said, and took a book down. She's ten months old, for God's sake, I said. I know, Seymour said. They have ears. They can hear. Then Seymour read to Franny that night by flashlight a story that was a favorite of his, a Taoist tale. To this day, Franny swears that she remembers Seymour reading it to her. Duke Mu of Chin said to Po Lo, You are advanced in years. Is there any member of your family whom I could employ to look for horses in your stead? Po Lo replied, A good horse can be picked out by its general build and appearance, but the superlative horse, one that raises no dust and leaves no tracks, is something evanescent and fleeting, elusive as thin air. The talents of my sons lie on a lower plane altogether. They can tell a good horse when they see one, but they cannot tell a superlative horse. I have a friend, however, one Chu Fang Kao, a hawker of fuel and vegetables, who in things appertaining to horses is no wise my inferior. Pray, see him. Duke Mu did so and subsequently dispatched him on the quest for a steed. Three months later, he returned with the news that he had found one. It's now in Sichui, he added. What kind of horse is it? asked the duke. Oh, it is a dun-colored mare, was the reply. However, someone being being sent to fetch it, the animal turned out to be a coal-black stallion. Much displeased, the duke sent for Polo. That friend of yours, he said, whom I commissioned to look for a horse, has made a fine mess of it. Why, he cannot even distinguish a beast's color or sex. What on earth does he know about horses? Polo heaved a sigh of satisfaction. Has he really gone as far as that, he cried? Ah, then he is worth 10,000 of me put together. There is no comparison between us. What Cow keeps in view is the spiritual mechanism. In making sure of the essential, he forgets the homely details. Intent on the inward qualities, he loses sight of the external. He sees what he wants to see and does not see what he does not want to see. He looks at the things he ought to look at and neglects those that need not be looked at. So clever a judge of horses is cow that he has it in him to judge something better than horses. When the horse arrived, it turned out indeed to be a superlative animal. What do we see when we look out at the world? What do we see? What are we looking for when we embark on our search? What are we looking for? It has everything to do, of course, with what we find. Training to see beneath the surface of things. Are we seeing clearly? Are we seeing what's essential? What is seeing the essential? What is seeing the nature of mind? 
How do we train in that? There's that part of the Vimalakirti Sutra where um, uh, it's right at the beginning when all of the bodhisattvas are gathered around the Buddha. Um, and uh, the Buddha is like offering these teachings on, on these Buddha realms and Buddha fields. And um, they're like these deities there, everybody's there, and Shariputra is also there. And um, uh, Shariputra's like looking around, he's like hearing all of these like um, very lofty descriptions of these different Buddha realms that all the different Buddhas are from. And the Buddha's giving a teaching on how like um, our perception, uh, our mind creates our ability to perceive the, the perfection of the Buddha realm. And Shariputra's like looking around at the, the realm that they're in and thinking like that, like maybe the Buddha wasn't like that realized as a bodhisattva or something. And so he inherited this kind of shitty realm. Like all the other realms sound amazing, but like here we are in this realm that like kind of sucks. And, um, and the Buddha uh, kind of reads his mind and, um, and there's a little bit of an exchange between Shariputra and um, one, of the, one of the deities there. And, um, and Shariputra kind of you know, says, like, this, this, this realm isn't so... I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in this realm and what, what's up with that. And um, Brahma says, um, well, I, this realm is like, looks amazing to me. And Shariputra's like, well, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns and its precipices, its peaks and its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with excrement. Which I love that he says that. That's like such a bold, <laughs> unfiltered statement from Shariputra. <laughs> And, um, and Brahma says, this is because there are highs and lows in your mind. So, you know, the, the Dharma teaches that we have um, our, our sense of reality is not, in fact, true reality. It's an, an, an element, but it's often compared to an illusion, that there's um, an illusory quality. To, to our perception. And so the teachings will often point to how do you see through the illusion? How do you see through the illusion? How do you see what's true, what's essential, what's really going on? And not just because we're curious or, you know, a brave philosopher, but because actually seeing clearly will free us and help us be of service to everyone else so they can be awake and free too. There's a passage that um, I've come across several times Charlotte Joko Beck quotes it in her book, Everyday Zen, and Dan Tigan Layton quotes it in the introduction to his translation of Cultivating the Empty Field. And so uh, uh, each time I'm like drawn toward it, and so I went to, to find the original source. Um, 
It's, it's a quote from um, a Zen teacher, Menzan Zuiho, who died in 1769 and was a, um, an abbot of a monastery in Japan and is credited with kind of bringing Dogen's teachings, kind of revitalizing Soto Zen and bringing Dogen's teachings like into to this like foundational place that they um, are, are considered now within the Soto school. And he wrote uh, commentaries on Dogen, and um, this, this passage is from a piece of his called Jijuyu Zanmai, Buddha Samadhi. When you practice and learn the reality of Zazen thoroughly, the frozen blockage of illusory mind will naturally melt away. If you think that you have cut off illusory mind, instead of simply clarifying how illusory mind melts, Illusory mind will come up again as though you had cut the stem of a blade of grass or the trunk of a tree and left the root alive. (sighs) Clarifying how illusory mind melts. In Joko Beck, uh, in her, her quoting of this passage, she um, has a slightly different translation and where they uh, use the phrase emotion thought instead of illusory mind. The frozen blockage of emotion thought will naturally melt away, clarifying how emotion thought melts. So helpful, I thought to see both of those translations. So this illusory mind, this emotion thought, what is this? Our whole experience is kind of encapsulated there in that, that phrase. I mean, we may catch a glimpse or have a practice or something that we do that helps us kind of transcend that emotion thought, but um, without that, without a way to cut through, that's pretty much the um, delusion, when we talk about delusion. So to let it melt, to let it dissolve, to let those frozen blockages of emotion, thought, go, How? How does that work? Um, you know, Tenzin Palmo, the, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist nun, who um, uh, is a, a teacher and who, who you know, is, is often her short of sort of short bio is that she spent 12 years living in this cave in the Himalayas as part of her practice. Um, She has a really nice description of what is this that we're actually doing and training in. Normally when we look and we experience anything, we really believe what we are seeing and experiencing. We are completely involved It is as if there is no space inside. But when we develop pure awareness, then we are not submerged by our thoughts. 
Awareness is always behind the thoughts and feelings. And so we practice. We practice being able to stand back to see the thoughts, memories, feelings, and emotions as merely thoughts, memories, feelings, as merely mental states, not something solid or real. Me and mine are just mental states. Mental states come, they stay for a moment, they go. That is all that is actually happening. But because we have no space in our mind, we can't see that. Meditation allows us to have the room to see that our thoughts and our feelings are not something solid, not something opaque. They are empty in their nature, like a bubble. We cannot catch hold of them. If we look into the thought itself, it evaporates. It melts. It dissolves. There's nothing there. The interesting thing is when um, we're really solidified, it's hard to do this. When there isn't any sense of space, the emotion thoughts, the illusory mind, is we are submerged. And so in states of fear or um, uh, depression or or, um, anxiety or anger, any of these like really strong states, these really strong emotions, we, we, we suffer because there's no space and we, we believe. So how, how to practice as a practitioner, you know, that can happen at any, any time, um, I mean, I speak from my own experience. It's like I feel like, okay, I understand how to practice zazen. I understand how to um, see into the activity of my mind. I understand how to see into um, the illusory nature of my mind and my emotion thoughts. And sometimes I cannot do that. (laughs) Sometimes that feels completely real. I am taken. And it's like, how then to practice, right? And I have have spoken with um, folks in the Sangha who are steady practitioners and who have, you know, real experience in working with their mind and who have found themselves challenged by their different emotional states that are arising. So first, just to appreciate, like, karma is strong. And um, has a sort of self-reinforcing quality. So when Tenzin Palmo speaks about, oh, later in that passage, she speaks about... um, if we can catch what's arising right at the moment when it's emerging into consciousness, then there's a vibrancy, a clarity, and we can like move through it. Um, uh, but if we don't catch them in, in the moments that they're being born, then we're going to have to deal with what 
follows, which is a more solid emotional state. Um, and so, you know, a, a um, really accomplished practitioner, as, as I think Gokhan made clear in his talk the other day, it's not that things aren't arising, it's just that they're arising and there's no place for them to sink in, right? So it comes and it melts. It's like just like a big blow dryer in there, just melt, melt, melt. Not really, not like a blow dryer. <laughs> but anyway, um, when it solidifies, then you got to work with it. So how do you practice melting illusions when you feel frozen solid? How do you practice when it's difficult? How do you soften a contracted state? So I have a few... Um, Thoughts to offer on the matter. Hopefully they're helpful. Um, Different ways to practice that I have found to be of benefit. So one is to practice gratitude, which um, is no news, right? There's scientific studies actually that show that um, when we are Um, bringing to mind something that we're grateful for. And even more potently, if we express that gratitude, different regions of our brain are actually activated and we move from kind of that like primitive fight or flight to like the like prefrontal cortex. That's like what's firing. I might have the science a little bit off, but you get the gist. Yeah. So... um, so it's, it's, they've done studies, and it, it, it shows. And so people will develop practices of gratitude. There was a, a, a month-long resident here, I guess back in December, who had a um, practice of writing in a gratitude journal, and she had been doing it every single day for years, for years, 10 years, maybe more. And um, I remember Dida Roche used to talk about if you have two people and one is like every day saying what they're grateful for and one is every day like bitching and moaning about their life, then, you know, at the end of the year, you're going to have two very different people with two very different outlooks and perspectives on life. Um, Gratitude is also, generally speaking, present-oriented. So if we're actually uh, reflecting on what we're grateful for, We're going to start with now. It's unusual to be grateful for something that hasn't happened yet, although I suppose anything's possible. So gratitude opens our hearts, and that's what we're looking for, like ways to open, ways to like let some light in, right? Let some space in from this very contracted state. There's a... um, uh, a, a beautiful teaching I found from Brother David Steindl-Rast, who's a Benedictine monk. He is 93 at this point, and he um, was very active in Buddhist-Christian dialogue and studied with Zen teachers like Suzuki Roshi and, and Edo Shimano, a- along with his um, Benedictine training. And he has a, his whole thing, well, I don't know about his whole thing, but on a cursory uh, look, teachings on gratitude are a really critical part of his, what he's bringing forth. 
and he's written different books about how this is like an essential part of religious practice and, and a religious spiritual life. And he has this um, book called 99 Blessings. And it is a um, collection of, of blessings that he spontaneously wrote. He, he speaks about how um, blessing, rightly understood, is the invisible bloodstream pulsating through the universe, alive and life-giving. And he um, has this collection of blessings as a way to inspire us to notice, to pay attention for our own blessings, and then also to be committed and and, um, uh, uh, eager to pass those blessings along. So I wanted to just share a couple. Um, They all sort of follow the same kind of uh, rhythmic format. It's quite beautiful. Source of all blessings. You bless us with breath, in and out, in and out, ever renewing us, ever anew, making us one with all who breathe the same air. May this blessing overflow into a shared gratefulness so that with one breath I may praise and celebrate life. Source of all blessings, you bless us with imprecision, with all that is vague, close but not quite, all that leaves room for the more specific, the more precise, and room for the imagination. May I know when to be exact and when to move freely and blessed in the space so generously provided by all that is not perfectly defined, giving full scope to my dreams and my creativity. Source of all blessings, you bless us with memory, that sacred ingathering of the past that allows us to recognize faces, learn poems by heart, find our way back when we are lost, and bring forth old and new from its nearly inexhaustible store. May I know what to forget and what to retain and treasure, keeping in mind the smallest kindness shown to me and spreading its ripples for a long time to come. So it's kind of an incredible teaching on bounty, You know, his collection runs the gamut from um, uh, close uh, chance encounters to the internet (laughs) to fresh linens. (laughs) So um, if I'm feeling contracted, then to like actively start to notice like, you know, source of all blessings. You bless us with the am timekeeper who got up early and made fresh coffee, and it's waiting for me. So another practice that I find helpful for letting some room in is, um, I wasn't sure what to call it. I'm like... uh, I started with intimacy, but that's like a very broad um, term. It's like contact with things. 
I really take such solace in like contact with like the phenomenal world. Um, I've been noticing so much how like if I spend all day at the office, I feel heavy hearted. But if I can like take a little time and like work in the dye studio or go do some shibori, it's a total game changer. And so this like contact that we can have with the, with the phenomenal world, it gives us a way to practice intimacy, right? To let our senses calm and open. I was speaking with someone on the phone the other day and I was like, you know, maybe you can like do your dishes or do your laundry or something. And she was like, actually, I have a stone path that I'm working on. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, rocks. But there's that also that relational intimacy. And I was thinking of our um, resident meeting from the other day and um, uh, how, you know, we, were, we uh, did a practice of gazing into each other's eyes, a beautiful meditation by Joanna Macy. And um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can like close, I can like see everybody's eyes. Like that was like dropping into a world and um, healing actually for me. And we were speaking about, um, you know, ways that we do know each other and ways in which um, it's, it's harder to get to know each other, or ways that we may not um, know each other so well, and, and the ways that the structures of the monastery may limit that, which I think is something so interesting and worthy of discussion. Um, but I was also thinking about, like, oh, like, we do so many things, actually, that are really intimate, like orioki, and, like, the server kneeling down and, like, putting your food in your bowl. <laughs> or, you know, even meal crew. And meal crew can be, like, a total, like, mood lifter for me sometimes, <laughs> ironically. Or not, because we're all, like, working together together. I have to say the meal crews during these little sessions are like, I don't know, a powerful teaching on like one body. And as we were speaking about this kind of relational piece, um, we were also, you know, talking about... um, ways in which practice and training are nourishing and supportive and ways in which we feel like maybe we're not getting what we need, which I think is such an interesting question to explore and kind of an interesting edge. You know, I was thinking about like, um, you know, the thing that is always quite close to the top of a list on like, you know, what do you need from residents is more sleep. (laughs) And I was thinking, like, wow, like, should we be getting up later? Like, what if we got up at 6? And kind of feeling a little, like, heartache over that. Like, really? Is that what we need? Um, You know, and then thinking, like, you know what? Maybe it's just that we need to, as I think we are doing, continue to kind of shift the culture. 
so that if you are really wiped out and you can't take it, you know it's okay to go to bed early. Like that, like we're creating room there. We're creating room. That's kind of a a beautiful thing. Um, I think also of like the, the personal care assignment during caretaking, which started not um, not that long ago and was sort of reserved for, you know, um, extreme cases, let's say. And, and now it's like, you know, people have come to Sashin sleep-deprived and hurting and been like, can I do personal care for caretaking? And I can feel my reaction, like, I don't know about that. But like, what is that? What is that reaction? Like, why not? It's so interesting. I think it's, a, I think it's an interesting thing to look at and, and worthy of consideration. And worthy of consideration in a conversation that allows um, for open hearing and also pushback, like a real, a real conversation. So we can consider. So anyway, this, this melting you know, softening, opening, contact, intimate contact. It actually creates space. And there's a vulnerability there that opens and that allows for some movement. And it allows us to see into the teaching of the 10,000 things. In our um, Ecodharma group, the other night, somebody was saying, you know, wow, what would it be like if you really did have a view that everything was alive? You know, as a, um, was, uh, is taught in some indigenous cultures, and, you know, which Loy is really pointing out, we do not in the um, white Western worldview, see things that way. But, um, you know, that's a very Zen view, actually. And uh, just like Shariputra, you know, when, when your mind is alive, um, it's like, you know, Gokhan talking about, like, what makes a rock flourish? Um, we see the life that's always there. So intimate contact, intimate relationship. Vulnerability within ourselves. Intimacy with ourselves, with our feelings. That's like so important. And when we really practice intimacy in its deepest forms, then where is the duality? Who are we intimate with? What are we intimate with? Can we actually drop into a place where that question no longer 
makes sense in the same way. What is that presence? That awareness? We might say Buddha nature. We might say God. When we're intimate in that way, then nothing gets left out. And so then even our hurting, our pain, our fear, even that can be held in that sacred view. And that's kind of the last um, uh, practice that I wanted to offer is just, you know, that, that practice of, um, if I were to use Daida Roshi's words, I would say, trust the process. You know, trusting that our, our practice, even if it feels um, uh, I don't know, to me, sometimes my practice feels insufficient to the moment, or I feel like I can't muster it forth. But even when I feel like that, to be able to see, like, okay, I'm going to do my best, and here I am, I'm immersed in a practice and a path that I know to be true. I know from my own direct experience that it is true. And so I can trust, in a sense, I can trust the Dharma. I can trust my own journey. This is like a rough patch or a difficult moment or a, um, a, a period of deep pain. But I'm actually not alone in it, in a deep sense, that feeling of loneliness and isolation. I can trust that that's part of this illusory mind. That sense is part of my emotion thought. It's part of my karmic formation. It's part of my response. It's my confusion. It comes from my mind. And underneath that, what? The light of the self, Menzan says. The cloudless light. We're not alone. Who's with us? (laughs) I think sometimes that um, I turn toward religious language that's, you know, uses words like God because it's offering me uh, a flavor or a sense of what I know to be true. And I don't believe in a God up, you know, in the clouds who's um, a being at all. But I know that there is profound sacred presence. You know, yeah, like 
So this is from um, a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke. that I will end with. And, um, okay, ready? So just again, this, this is a poem. I'm thinking about holding that view of, of the journey, this life journey. God speaks to each of us as we are made, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words, the numinous words we hear before we begin. You, called forth by your senses, reach to the edge of your longing. Become my body. Grow like a fire behind things so their shadows spread and cover me completely. Let everything into you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the land they call life. You will recognize it by its intensity. Give me your hand. Let everything into you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.